Greetings from Taipei. As you might have noticed, I haven't been posting episodes as frequently, and that's because I've mostly been spending time with family, my daughter, and just taking it a bit slower in Taiwan. However, I wanted to start putting out some older episodes. In the last year or two, I think my subscriber count has four or five xed, which means many of you probably haven't listened to some of the older episodes, which I think are just as good as some of the newer ones. So, without further ado, I'll dive into this week's episode. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm talking with Ben Keene, who describes himself as someone that helps people do work that matters to them and the world. We'll dive into the many, many adventures he's gone on in his life over the past 20 years. We're also going to dive into his recent return from Colanta, where he spent six months with his family, including three kids, living on an island in Thailand. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. I was trying to make sense of the many adventures you've been on over the years, and a word that kept popping up in my head is the word dreaming. You seem like somebody that likes to dream big and help others dream big. First, does that resonate? And just curious, where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, it's nice to be reminded that that's they are. Uh, it can look and feel like that from the outside. I guess it, for me, it's I, I've been fortunate to get into that habit or mindset, mindset, or sometimes a bad habit of trying to turn turn big ideas or dreams into reality. Um, and yeah, it's it's funny because uh, I feel like. <laughs> I constantly sort of ask myself, oh, when am I going to, you know, grow up and try and do something? And I thought, you know, having a family would lead to that. But obviously, in recent times, it's led to more adventures. Um, so, yeah, the dreaming thing is is always been, I think it was, you know, from my family and from my education was always like chase, chase the opportunities, chase what matters to you. Um, and then just, you know, being part of friendship networks and projects, I guess, earlier on in life, which helped me uh give me confidence go go and do these things and um yeah it's 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 uh it's fun and i i think i get almost as much uh, pleasure out of helping other people try and make that happen as well so mainly around startups but very much tied to the to the way of working and and often where they work as well and changing their lifestyle yeah so you've been doing these things for about 20 years how did you first get into helping people carve new paths and doing that yourself as well well, the honest answer is that I escaped the uh, professional or corporate life before it even began. So you can say that was naive because I never went off and made any money that way, even though that path was sort of laid out in front of me. Um, but I was in one of those uh, at college, one of those um, uh, evenings where big companies come along and they give you lots of beer and pizza and then say, hey, it's great. Come and work on this. And 
a lot of my friends who are studying anthropology or business studies or politics and I thought oh, interesting people doing interesting things and they were all in this queue to sign up for these graduate recruitment schemes or consultancy programs and um and oh, guys what's going on here and they're like no this is what happens so I was a bit naive maybe but I just felt like well that's not something I want to do go on that secure path that rejects a little bit of the things that I feel like I'm curious about matter so I went off traveling like so many of us do um and I got in Involved with a small travel startup, I was their first employee, and we see, you know, my job was driving Land Rovers around West Africa up to Timbuktu and back, and you know that is an education, um, <laughs> getting people around that part of the world, and uh, it's incredible. And so that was my apprenticeship, I guess, uh, in trying to turn dreams into reality. And then a couple of years later, I, I sort of this travel company was getting more established, and I was spending more time in an office. I was like, oh, I'm getting itchy feet here. And it wasn't my business, so I had the freedom to, to move on quite quickly. Um, and the, the area that I was curious about was helping people who, were, who weren't who were 18 um, or 19 years old, who wanted to go off and do big trips, take career breaks, sabbaticals, um, try and think about what might be next in their lives. <coughs> um, but there's a lack of guidance online. So this was 2004, uh, so a long, long time ago. And so I made a little blog called Career Break Cafe, and the idea was just to help people give them guidance about how to make this transition. And that started to get a, a little bit of momentum, but the business model was selling, you know, banner ads and sky. You remember the skyscraper wow. ads yeah, down the course. side of websites. And it doesn't matter how much how passionate you are about the content and the impact of the work, that sales model is it kills you very quickly. So. Um, yeah, so that was running out of steam after a few months, and then, uh, but I got in touch through through it with a guy who, uh, you know, this was the time of MSN Messenger, Hotmail accounts, and MySpace. Um, so we have to, you know, we're jumping back a little bit. Early um, and this guy got in touch. <laughs> exactly, uh, got in touch on MSN and said, "Hey Ben, I've read your travel blog and career break blog. And it's really interesting." But I'm 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 from the world of music, and uh, MySpace was exploding at the time, and there was a British band called the Arctic Monkeys who went to number one. Their first their first ever single went to number one in, in Europe and around the world. And it was like, you know, they were the most successful British band since the Beatles. And yet they didn't have a big production company behind them. And everyone was like, how did they get, get this traction? And it was, the music was good, but it was also because they built this huge following on MySpace. And so there was this moment in the music industry where people were like, oh, something is shifting here. And, um, you know, 20 years later, obviously, that's really, we, we are 15 years later, that's, it's normal now. Um, but at the time, it was really new. And so this guy, Mark, got in touch with me and said, I'm interested in whether we could create a MySpace book for travel. So the idea was very simply, could you pick a destination in the world and build a social network or, or um, community around it online that would engage with the place and so on? And the thing this seems very normal as we talk about it right here. Yeah. But in 2004, it was it was a big leap, immense sort of imaginative leap, or it was for me anyway. Um, but what I liked about it was two things. One was that in community-based tourism or ecotourism or voluntourism, which I was doing a lot of at the time, um, you have this. You have two big problems. One of the big problems is that people aren't necessarily engaged with the project before, in a in, in a sort of meaningful way understand the culture so they get there and it, it takes time to learn all that things and you can get some some challenges around responsible tourism and the second is the business model right people come once it's one-off thing uh you work hard to get that sale and um i thought maybe there's something here where people could support a project or a destination over a period of time rather than just as a, for their trip 
Um, and that was that got me really excited. And so um, anyway, we launched Tribe Wanted. I launched it with this guy I barely knew uh, about a month later. And we'd found an island on Google in northern Fiji. And uh, we found a landowner that was looking to lease this island um, right off the, the, the top end of Fiji, um, away from the main tourism. And Yeah, so I, I want to slow you down a little there. Okay. Just, just because it seems like there's a bigger leap from getting uh, experimenting with some of the startup stuff and going to, I'm going to pick a spot in an island and build a tribe. What, <laughs> what was the shift or like, what was your mindset during that time? I think so. The, so this, these trends that we've, we've just, I've just been talking about with the social networks and the travel and community tourism and potentially bring those together. The question that we asked ourselves then was, um, if we were going to try out this kind of project, have an online community and a destination and some sort of support or connection between the two, um, where would we do this new sort of tourism experiment? Um, and for us, it was really clear we would want to do something that was almost like the opposite of what a digital or an online community would be. It's a remote place in the world. So I, I've always been a uh, an islomaniac, I guess, like many people drawn to these remote, beautiful islands around the world. Um, so that's where we decided. So we started hunting for islands online. And of course, what you find when you Google islands for sale or for lease is a millionaire playground. It's all super yachts and big dollars and so on. And there's plenty out there, but it wasn't really our domain. We, we both just graduated from uni and we didn't have much cash. So, um, so yeah, that was the leap, but then it got hooked. How could we, how could we make this happen? And of course, crowdfunding was the model we were thinking of, but this was pre Facebook, pre Kickstarter, certainly in the UK, these things hadn't arrived. So we were all just thinking about how could we do this with a PayPal button basically, and, uh, you know, getting some attention online. Um, but we found this island where contact of a contact who said, are you for real? And we were like, well, here's our business model. And, and off we went. And um, <clears throat> yeah, and we, we basically, uh, I went over to Fiji and agreed a lease with the chief and the gov- local government for three years. Um, and they said that the agreement basically said, okay, you can do this, but you need to uh, pay, I think it was 20,000 pounds, something like that. So about a, a third of the lease fee um over within the next six weeks so that was then when it got real so i was like okay we've got to raise 20 grand in six weeks to make this thing happen was there a moment in that when you kind of just stopped and said oh shit i just agreed to build a tribe in an island for three years yeah well the only the investment was the flight to fiji at that point um but that that was okay the thing that pushed think pushed me over the edge and it was a really mundane thing in the end that like made me go i really want to give this a go was <coughs> the fact that uh here in the uk you can travel on around the country on trains with a young person's card and it it's um i think it's up to the age of 26 and you get a, like a third off your travel and i just look i remember when i was working on this project online and i looked down and i saw my card and it was about to expire that month or something and i was going to be no longer a young person and so I thought, you know what I should do? I'm going to be an adult from next month, at least in terms of getting cheaper travel and not getting cheaper travel anymore. I should really go and do something much more serious, like trying to rent an island. <laughs> so that was a little spur to like push me into action, which is like a change in, in the stage life stage that I was at, I guess. Um, instead of getting a, a proper job, go and try and rent an island. So, yeah, we put it. 
we put it out there and I think it was April the 3rd, 2006, tribewanted.com. And it was like a four page website, a designer friend helped it. We paid 400 pounds to make it. Um, we had PayPal button on it uh, for three types of membership. And the, the smaller membership was about $180, $200. And that was a week on the island. But there was no, you know, and a year's membership to our to our tribal community. And that was the proposition. It wasn't much more detailed than that because we didn't know what was going to happen. And um, we put it out online, hit publish, didn't tell anyone, uh, any of our friends, or I didn't anyway, and then uh, managed to persuade uh, someone we knew who worked in PR to get a press release out. And then nothing happened for 48 hours. So we just assumed, okay, well, the last two months of you know, planning and the trip to Fiji was fun, but <laughs> clearly this is way too crazy an idea. Uh, so never mind, we gave it a go. And um, just as I was letting that, that disappointment um, kick in, um, I got a, I woke up and I got some, a bunch of messages coming in from friends. They said, Hey, I've just seen you in the, in the paper and there's something about an island and what's going on. And it was picked up by, I think, an intern of working at the Metro newspaper, which is like one of these free papers that, that get given out in yeah. cities. And we were like a page three feature, like oh, a wow. kind of crazy kooky project. And there was like an ad for the project. Um, and that day, I think we got £10,000 worth of membership sales. Um, and, and what happened off the back of that was that it, that was that was like the press release that all the other mainstream media and then, um, you know, digital media picked up. So within within a month, we had gone crazy, yeah. uh, at least for us. So that was the beginning. So it was really exciting. Um, and then there were lots of challenges afterwards. But we ended up moving to Fiji and living there for five years and building this community. Yeah, was that a bit scary the first moment you got that payment, uh, which basically said, okay, now I need to follow through on this and make it happen? Well, there's this wonderful th thing about commitment, isn't there, in, in life? Like when you commit, the magic really starts to happen, whether that's with a, a new project, a relationship, or a, a venture, or, or whatever it is. And I think that was the moment for sure, you know, because you've, you've made, you've put the word out there, and then, then someone says, go on then turn this dream into reality for me too and then tens and then hundreds and thousands of others jump in and then you're like okay and so it's really exciting but quickly it feels quite pressurized or it did especially as we didn't really know how we were going to do it <laughs> so um but it was really exciting and i think there's there's probably not many moments in life um where you can have a real go at something uh, without too many other responsibilities around you um and so we timed that well and yeah it was an exhausting a uh, year or two because there was lots of ups and downs with the project but it, no regrets um and uh it was it led to many other great things and a lot of good friendships i know you've talked a lot about uh this experience and i'll i actually found some amazing early youtube videos about the uh, mm. whole experiment so i'll link to those if people want to dive in i definitely encourage people to check that out but when you reflect on that experience today, what are the one or two big reflections that you often just keep coming back to? I think so. So first of all, emotionally, there's one of just like the pure adrenaline and excitement of creating something new and being part of something really special, especially as a community um, in Fiji. That was that was a wonderful experience. Um, but also the emotions of the 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 stress, financial stress that it created uh you know the <laughs> all these promises that we made um so yeah it was a really intense time uh for me uh that first year or two um in terms of lessons uh there were it, it's kind of it was kind of like doing a, a you know a 10-year mba in six months 
um, and life lessons. So um, I think the biggest thing I learned is that your, you know, whatever you think might be possible is is possible uh, in terms of getting it going. Um, you just really have to commit to something if you really want to make it happen. Um, but also, I think one of the big lessons I would, in terms of doing it differently, I probably would have not right at the start because it would have been hard to get people's guidance and support the start. But quite quickly, as we got the project up and running, I would have got a lot more, especially business guidance, I think. Um, but it's hard at the time because things are moving really fast. Um, and so it's hard to stop and pause and think, OK, how should we do this? Things are just moving. Um, so, no, I think it was just the, the learning was like, just go out there and make these things happen when you get the chance. Um, and just just the only thing you need to ask us, I always do with any project is try and jump forward a little bit. And so, OK, if this did work or this did get momentum, what does my what does my life and my work and everything look like in six months, one year, two years time? And um, is that is that good? You know, am I happy with that? And am I happy with the fact that this is going to be all consuming uh, that this isn't going to pay well for a little while, that this is going to be experimental in places. And that's if, if you're in that frame of mind and you're ready and you've got all your time and energy to put into it and you care about the project, um, that's great. But you might also be at a different stage of life, like I am now, where you have some different commitments with family and a, a home and that kind of thing. And so you have to say, does it fit in with that? And so learning what those red lines are in your own life where you're not going to negotiate and then making decisions around how you start, build and grow uh, a project or organization around that. But that's that's the wisdom that comes 20 years later. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure it was a, a bit more challenging and uh, all over the place back in the moment. Yeah, it was. But uh, I mean, we had some crazy things happen just really briefly. We had... Um, uh, a guy uh, in California who I think was younger than us at the time, who wrote a blog, 5,000 word blog saying, is tribewanted.com a scam? And of course we were flying up. It used, it used to be a, like um, things like dig before right. Reddit and those sites. It yeah, was a I site called that. dig and we were flying. We were like a positive news story on dig and that was driving amazing SEO and all this stuff. We were, you know, we were on the verge of being a, a big viral uh, story online. It certainly felt like that for us. And um, and then this guy wrote this blog, which was like a bunch of red flags. And this was his kind of it was his way of blogging. He would just pick interesting new projects that were out online and he would critique them quite heavily and then drive loads of traffic his way <laughs> to pay his ads. Anyway, so it was really annoying. But, you know, it was it was nothing that we could really do about it. Um, but of course, people don't know. So they read this thing and then suddenly it's the top search thing in your it's almost above your oh, own geez. domain name. Yeah. So And it didn't go away for three or four years and there was nothing legally we could really do about it. He had, no, of course, the frustrating thing for me in that situation is that he had no responsibility. Right. So he just wrote this blog and off he went. Um, and a lot of people clicked on it because it was a compelling headline. I mean, a classic conspiracy sort of theory for, for us anyway. Um but the impact was huge. I mean, we went from taking uh, £500 a day to £50 a day in memberships after that. Um, so all those that were excited but had doubts and came across that would obviously held back until they saw it happening for real um, in a year's time. So that was the crazy thing was that he said at the bottom of this this rant, this blog, he said, uh, if you really want to go on a great adventure island holiday, I'd recommend National Geographic <laughs> Expeditions. 
So I was like, okay, great. And two years later, that's a very good recommendation. We'll try and uh, be one of. Two years later, we were a cover. We were the cover story of National Geographic. Oh wow! So uh, I sent it to him <laughs> and said, "You recommended us all that time. <laughs> Thank you for the recommendation." Um, but of course, that didn't undo the damage um, that that had been created by that. So that I think we see that still now, right online, where yeah. at one moment the speed of um, success and failure is it can happen really quickly. Well, I think people yes. are more aware of that now too, right? <laughs> that uh, negative headlines are going to drive more traffic and uh, yeah. I think people are a little more skeptical of it now. Yeah, I think so. And I, my instinctive reaction when that came out was, um, because we were getting traction in the States, um, was to take it on, right? I said, look, let's go on, let's sit down, let's do, you know, let, let me have a podcast with him. Let's, let's go and have a conversation face-to-face or at least record a conversation with him so i can answer all his questions and the advice we got from the states was i guess more traditional kind of marketing or pr advice was like no you're just these aren't this is just a kid on the internet you really want to be focusing on getting on good morning america and all this stuff and i was like okay all right i don't know how it works and i think that was probably the wrong decision because uh, if we really engaged with him maybe he would have gone okay fair enough but there we go. That that happened. So we had that, the scam accusation. Then we, then physically on the island in the first six months, once we were up and running, we were building this village. People were coming to stay. We were working with our Fijian friends. Uh, we had a um, uh, a fire in the first two weeks. There hadn't been one in 15 years. And it was just an accident, accidental fire started by one of the local farmers. But it, that was pretty dramatic. Uh, and then we had a uh, in Fiji itself, there was a political coup. So the army took over the the country um uh, it was very peaceful <laughs> it's kind of like the most calm political uprising you can imagine everyone just carried on uh, you know in their coconuts and watching rugby but yeah that happened and it created negative headlines around the world which impacted tourism and, and obviously us as well um and then once that had just got we got over that there was the biggest cyclone in a decade or something and so that knocked over most of the infrastructure that we built but you know just it's a it's a kind of like it's someone telling us not to do this project but so the first six months were intense but we got over that and then we had five wonderful years on the island wow so as that wrapped up and you decided to leave fiji where was your head at the time how were you thinking about making the transition away from that yeah so the business the business model was tough um, we put a lot in up front and some of those challenges i've just shared like impacted that so I borrowed money and to keep it going and so on. Um, but we, uh, yeah, it was, we didn't, you know, we, we, the lesson, another lesson was like, we didn't charge enough money, obviously, <laughs> for the experience at the start. Um, and so we got into debt quite quickly. Plus we invested way too much in the online community. We're building all the, all the components from scratch. So yeah, it was, the project was in debt and, you know, the extending the lease longer term would have cost us a lot more. So the business model needed to change. So I said, look, I'm stepping out now. The infrastructure's there. The local community carried on, build new partnerships, and that's that's carried on since then. Not in the, not in the same level, but they've done. They've kept the the island going. Um, so yeah, the transition for me was quite a hard one because it'd been everything for a while. But what was exciting was that there'd been loads of people because of this, you know, the amount of publicity the project had got, get in touch. Hey, this model is obviously clearly a success. Let's go and do it here or here. You know, in all these places around the world. You know, and it was amazing. So it was like. <coughs> obvious places like other beaches and islands around the world but then i had uh we had uh offers come in from like the city of detroit and uh <laughs> you know it just really interesting places or like the, the 
the um, somewhere in the Arctic Circle, uh, wow. just to build these interesting different kind of community experiences. Um, the problem was we didn't we didn't crack the business model. We weren't we didn't have the Airbnb scalability on that side. Right. Um, we we had a really exciting community tourism and an online project, but it it wasn't. We hadn't nailed the business model. So that was uh, we did end up doing three other projects, which were all in their own way <coughs> really successful. Um, so we spent a year living and working um, in Sierra Leone uh, in West Africa. And the opportunity there, there was some funding and a good partnership opportunity to go and support the development of an ecotourism project on the beach, a beach near Freetown. And of course, it, when you think of Sierra Leone, typically people who will think of, you know, blood diamonds and Ebola now and, you know, a lot of poverty. But it's a remarkable place in terms of culture and it's beautiful and the beaches and everything. So we wanted to play a part in trying to help change the story. Um, and lots of other people are doing that as well. So that was really great. And that ran for five years and then it got passed on to the local community, although Ebola obviously had a big uh, a big um, impact, of course, locally, but also on the, on the people who were planning to travel there. Um, and then we've been running a project in Umbria in Italy, which is obviously a little different. Uh, for the last six years now and that's still running so that's uh, it's it's like a, a sustainable farm it's you know make olive oil and wine have their own pigs and um, cows it's, it, and horses it's a beautiful place it's like the original good life and um, so my business partner who's Italian set that up and we, we've been going there for a few years and I'm not involved personally with that now because I've moved on to other things but um, yeah that's still going so you can go and live uh We'll spend a few weeks on this beautiful farm and eat and drink the best the best you ever have. I'd love to dive into some of your work with the escape school. And I noticed, I mean, you've worked with people, especially early in your career. You talked about helping people take mid-career sabbaticals. Uh, you basically designed your 20s doing all sorts of different things, different experiments, trying to figure out technology, the internet. How, what drew you to work with the escape school and what do you think are some of the differences in terms of how people were approaching designing their own paths uh, when you started there and maybe 10 years prior when you were starting out? The story of the escape school or escape the city as the organizations uh, is called. So this was set up by two guys who are, you know, like yourself had been in the world of corporate and consultancy and they were, they were in their late twenties and they were sort of you know, the economic crash had just happened. Lehman Brothers had just gone bust. And they were like, oh, something's changing here. And we're not happy in our jobs. And we want to go and do, go on big adventures, start our own businesses, have more positive social impact in the world. And they couldn't find the community or organization that would help people like them make that transition. Um, because it felt like a big deal to them to, to walk away from this uh, this world that was very seemed very safe um, or where they were supposed to be, you know, ticking their career boxes. So um, what they did because they had each other, they had each other on and they started um, running little meetups and, and uh, a Monday newsletter, which was like the top 10 escape opportunities in the world. And they were just exciting jobs and adventures and opportunities. And they would share this and this mailing list grew. And so that's been going, that mailer has been going for, you know, eight or nine years now. And, um, uh, it's built, a, you know, a big following, and it's still it's, even if you love your job, it's a great email to get on a Monday. Like ten really cool opportunities in the world. Um, so that was how Escape the City started, and then it's been on a mission since then to try and help people find, you know, escape whatever job they don't really want to be in and move into more fulfilling work for them, whatever that looks like. Um, and so I, I was uh, 
they kindly invited me to one of to one of their sort of kickoff parties in London to talk about the story I've just shared with you. You know, the tribe wanted story as a as an example of here's the kind of crazy stuff you could be doing instead of working in London. Um, and so I shared that, and halfway through, I realised there's 600 um, quite frustrated. Uh, corporate professionals in this room it was a big turnout in this room they all had a few drinks they're all a bit like oh come on give me some clues as to how i can do this and i'm basically showing a bunch of holiday pictures as far as they're concerned <laughs> right so i was like right come on think think how can we how could i could try and help these people here with a bit more of a realistic jump and so i remember that um a good friend of mine who's runs this incredible project called right to dream which is a leadership and sports academy in ghana in west africa and it's now the best football academy for girls and boys in 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 africa and it's an incredible project you can check it out right to dream and he was looking for someone to help develop their paralympic uh the disabled athlete program um and to try and get some uh para athletes from ghana to the london 2012 olympic or paralympic games and anyway i mentioned this and like a friend of mine was looking for someone to help with this sports development project. And it was really exciting. Anyway, I mentioned in passing. And then afterwards, of course, loads of people were like, Ben, well, tell me about that project in Ghana, that job in Ghana. So um, I interviewed a few on behalf of my friend of the people who came forward and, and re- made my recommendations. Anyway, six months later, when I'm in Sierra Leone, my friend calls and says, hey, Ben, you remember um, uh, the the lady you recommended for the job uh, she's doing a great job anyway she's coming to Sierra Leone next week could you look out for her because it's her first trip now I said sure anyway she is downstairs now with my three children our wow. three children <laughs> so so that's how the relationship with Escape the City started was that I I met my wife um at the launch party so that's since then I've kind of been like I owe these guys <laughs> No, that's so a, that was that. It's a big that duty nice to beginning. them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This is what happens when you turn up to these kind of events. You meet people who are trying to do similar things. Um, so yeah, we we um, we were, worked in West Africa. Susan and I worked in West Africa on these different projects, and we came back to London. And I got back in touch with the Escape the City crew, and I said, "How's it going here? Um, I think we're going to come back and settle in the UK for a little while, maybe try and start a family and." Um, I'd love to see if I can help you guys with your project. And they just started this exploring this idea of uh, education for people because it's all very well having the most exciting opportunities in the world, but they kind of fly past like silver bullets. They're very hard to catch. Uh, when you're sitting in your corporate job or your lawyer and account, like, oh, you know, astronaut relationship manager for Virgin Galactic. How do I even think about making right. that change? It's, uh, um, or, you know, chief experience officer for Airbnb, which these people may be qualified for, but it feels like such a big uh, psychological shift, right, to, to think about those opportunities. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people and so many people just frame it as all or nothing too, right? Mm. So it's, mm. I'm in this job and it it's basically in this job or I have to blow everything up and start a new life. And yeah. I... It's often much more subtle and slower in terms of shifting mindsets, redefining success, putting people through small experiments, making them feel uncomfortable. But um, how have you thought about some of those small things to help people start to make those uh, shifts? So what you've just described, Paul, is is the kind of model that we – um, and we so for the last five years, building this escape school to help people make this transition is the model that we've that we focused on, which is small steps. So you start with a, some 
something's pushing you away, right? There's something that's not quite right or some, maybe a big thing that's not right in your work or your, or your life. And then there's some pull factors like, oh, I've got this entrepreneurial itch I want to scratch or I need, I always wanted to go on this big adventure. I want to work on that problem in the world. Um, how do I start to explore it? And of course, it's not an either or. It's not suddenly I go from management consultant to social entrepreneur in like, just like that. Um, it takes um, skill shift, uh, emotional shift, psychological shift, people shift, you know, social network shifts and location shift often. So it's a, it's a significant number of changes and that takes time. But the, the main, we focus on, and this is what we've done at Escape City, but I also focus on with my other projects as well, focus on three things. <laughs> uh, one is uh, um, who's, who you're working with so, or who you're spending your time with. So <laughs> it sounds obvious to, to you and I, but like if you want to, explore this new world of work or uh, digital nomads or uh, social entrepreneurship, whatever it is you're curious about, then you need to start spending time in that space. And that doesn't mean you, you change your life to go in that space. You just need to start experimenting or exploring it, go to events, go on a one-off trip. You know, all your reading is around this subject, all your social media, change your social media feed to follow these people and these projects. Um, and that's the first step. And then the second step is to start to uh, do something that's more than just like just following things. It's actually acting. So it's like, how can I add value to any of these people or projects? What they're doing? Okay, Paul's got this really interesting guy called Paul. He's got this podcast. I'm really interested in this stuff. Hi, Paul. Um, I'm curious about this. Could I help you in any way? Um, you know, and then suddenly it's like, oh, right, I'm actually contributing to this and I'm learning about it and so on. Um, and then the third thing is obviously just just getting that into a, a you know more and more steps. And at some point, looking at your business plan, your financial plan, and saying, could I cut cut down to four four days a week? Could I go freelance? Could I go part time? Have I got enough savings to then give me a six month or twelve month runway to try this new life, and so on? Um, and what I've learned um, about people who go through this, helping, you know, probably one or 2,000 people now through the escape school and outside as well, uh, whether it's starting businesses or, or doing other things, is that people often will wait until they're at breaking point in terms right. of the pain levels before they really act. And that's a dangerous place to get to because obviously then you're, you're unstable in many ways. But also, you know, it doesn't have to be this sort of like jump off a cliff. It can be the smaller steps. And when you're working in this this so-called new world of work that we're in, you realize that it's messy, that there's no clear path. It's not like a graduate scheme where you go up a ladder and that's it, or uh, you know, you're in, in the armed forces. And that's the old world. It's not this three-stage career. It's like the portfolio career. It's multiple identities. It's up and down cash. Uh, it's different locations. It's, you know, and that's the hard thing. It's getting used to being that adaptable uh, person that goes up and down and I still struggle with that sometimes like I wish especially with young kids I wish I had that regular nine to five not <laughs> not often but I do sometimes wish that right. and I think my wife probably does as well but um, yeah that's that's what we've learned how do you think about what you do next and where to spend your time or what to experiment on so we have this thing uh, we've sort of developed at escape school could you call your good idea criteria Okay, and these are essentially your non-negotiables when you're looking at op new opportunities. So they are a mixture of your aspirations and your dreams and the things that you would love to spend all your time doing and your reality. So your resources, your time, your money, your 
networks, your skills, et cetera. And what it spits out at the bottom is like, okay, here are the things when I'm looking at scanning for opportunities or I'm daydreaming about things I love to do or I'm looking about where we want to live. These are the things that are kind of my my benchmarks for saying yes or no to them or at least looking a bit more into it. Um, and so for me, for example, it's got to fit around my family. That's the number one thing. And um, it's got to bring enough money and it's got to, um, you know, give me enough time with my family. And then number two, it's got to be able to say, OK, is it a creative process? Am I having a positive impact? Is it got potential to scale? Um, and then the third thing, is it fun and adventurous? Um, and of course, <laughs> not every project will be like that, but those are my kind of criteria. And then it's all about just staying connected with projects and people that are exciting. How did you decide to start something like the Rebel Book Club? Or maybe you can tell us what it is first, uh, but I'd love to just hear like maybe some of the practical, like really tactical steps of how you actually did that. Yeah, and I think it's the mindset that's crucial here because um, it's such a contrast to the Tribe Wanted project, which was a wildly ambitious thing. This is quite a sort of mundane, it's really fun, but it's quite a small, like simple model. So Rebel Book Club came about when I was in Bali um, four years ago. And I was running a little remote startup program, um, really just to, to as a way of funding uh, our time there for a few months. Um, and uh, out of Hubud, this famous co-working space in Bali. Anyway, I had a group of 20 people who would check in every day and how you doing on your projects. And it was just about accountability and helping them uh, move forward. And uh, one of the guys who was on that, um, he's also called Ben. And we talked about, we, we were comparing Kindles and we realized that we both had a problem, a really big problem, which was that we had loads of similar books that were unread on our Kindles. Well, they were between 10 and 20% read. And we're like, what's going on here? We're downloading them. We're not finished. We're starting them. We're not finishing them. Mainly startups, mainly like, um, you know, business, science, biography, um, you know, all nonfiction, basically. <coughs> so we decided let's uh, let's have a, you know, do a little book club. So we did one in Bali and we had a meet up at the end and a cocktail and so on with 10 other people and it was great and i was like oh this is fun um but obviously that's just a book club and people have done that for for decades or centuries but we thought what i suggested was that well when we go back to london next month and he was heading home too why don't we set this up because this is i think this is great and it helps solve a problem for me and i think there's something here um why don't we set this up where we say right every month we're going to read one non-fiction book and a different theme each month so we we uh, keep changing and we're going to hold you or the members of people participate uh, accountable to finishing the book. So we'll nudge you, we'll, we'll help coach you through it. Um, and then at the end of the month, we'll meet up somewhere physically and uh, we'll have a, a cocktail and we'll, you know, see how we can get something out of this book and apply it to our lives. So it's not a critique of the book. It's like what in this was interesting, insightful and how might we take it back into our lives? So it's like useful reading. Um and we'll charge people for the opportunity to be part of this from the start. So the goal on day one was like, could we get 15 people to give us 15 pounds in one month to be part of this? And we pick a book and off we go. And so we created a simple landing page. Um, we use GoCardless, which uh, is you know, a subscription direct debit model and a, a button. And we had a little application form, which we use Typeform for, and people would apply. So we just wanted, because we wanted to make sure the people who were coming on board were really up for this and they were um, like-minded and so on. Um, and it, yeah, between us, we got 25 people in that first month and it's grown every single month since next month will be our 50th 
month or 50th book. And we've now got over 500. And there's been times where it's been steady and other times we've little bursts. And we're now running in four cities, mainly in London, but we're just starting to open up European cities. And it's just one of those projects that, you know, for four years now has just been fun. But it's also been financially sustainable, started to pay a little bonus every year. Um, and it's made a really positive impact. And it's, you know, last week we had 150 people come to our meetup wow. in London with Kate Rayworth, who's the author of Donut Economics. So authors start coming now, which is amazing about this like future model of economy and um, in the world that we live in. And and it was, you know, we're, we're Skyping in our other cities and we're having chats online and, you know, it's still a pretty simple model, but it's, it's fun and it's got potential to grow. And the thing I think one of the reasons it's worked is that we never put a lot of pressure on ourselves or onto the idea to be a big success. So it's like the lack of ambition is kind of the reverse psychology has made it sort of almost a success. And also we haven't had the time. So the two of us who've worked on it, this has been our very much a side hustle or a side, you know, it's a two hour a week project. Now it's for me, it's, it's a 10 hour a week project. It's grown. Um, but you know, for three or four years, it was just very much like, okay, Sunday night, log in, update, new members, new book, go. <laughs> that would be it. So it's been great. That's fantastic. I think there's such a key lesson there in terms of how you approach that. You didn't start out saying, I need to have a 500-member book club, right? You just invited people to an in-person event, said, okay, maybe there's something here, and then kind of kept it simple um, and did the digital version, but also didn't make it super uh, grand in terms of ambitions and then just basically saw what people were reacting to. I love that approach. Yeah. And I think it's it's just so much more possible with today's tech tools uh, oh, that totally. I think, especially a lot of people in the corporate world, aren't aware how easy it is to do some of these things, mostly because they're not exposed to some of the tools that their organizations just hasn't embraced yet. It's wild. I mean, so this weekend, so the last two days, um, I've just kicked off the the ninth program of led on the um at the escape school for the stuff we call it the startup accelerator so it's a three-month part-time program for people who are curious about trying to build a business um or more than curious they're serious about it and the big the two big things that really help them is one is the cycle of, you know move from like thinking to doing so like right this week guys you're going to do a business model you're going to talk to 10 customers you're going to mock up a landing page you're going to go out there and try and sell this you know, it's just like push, push, push to act. And then the second thing is just curating the, that toolkit for them. So it, it's, it feels, I think, a little bit now like once they realize, oh, you can build loads of stuff online really cheaply, um, then it's like, where do I start? Because you know, five years ago, they were like, it was like WordPress and maybe one other web building tool that you could do without hiring a developer. Now there are 100 at least. And yeah. the no code kind of revolution or trend we actually i was doing startup trends in a in one of the sessions over the weekend and i was like you know we put the no code no worries as a trend and like the maker movement as a trend because in the last five years suddenly they are like these are people are building as you are remarkable and exciting careers using this toolkit 
Yeah, definitely. I, I run a lot of stuff using no code tools like Coda. Even things like this podcast are running on Anchor, which are uh, now free to uh, publish your podcast on all the platforms. So it's, it's nice. Pretty... Well, we're just about to launch our uh, Rebel Book Club po- podcast. So we'll, uh, we'll look into yeah. Anchor. Fantastic. Um, so all these experiments are great business models, companies. Then you have a few kids. Um, <laughs> And I imagine approaching something like deciding to live in an island with three kids is a little bit of a different thought process than uh, starting a business abroad or uh, launching a digital business. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. So August last year, we, we, we put our house on the market about a year before that. So we put on the house on the market. I think the month that the Brexit referendum had gone through, uh, great, great timing that. So <laughs> basically people have stopped buying houses since then because no one knows what's going to happen to the economy here. Um, so yeah, we hand sold our house, which, cause we wanted to move out to the country a bit more. And anyway, uh, so we thought, hold on, why are we looking at like potentially renting and going and live in the country down the road, you know, 50 miles from where we live? Why? Well, you know, if the only thing at the moment that's tying us here is, well, our eldest daughter is about to start school and I'm still doing some work with Escape the City in London. But other than that, there's nothing physically tying us here. Why don't we why don't we use this as an opportunity to go and, you know, go and live somewhere differently for a little while? And, I, you know, I came home with this thought and you could just see my wife going, oh, no, he's this isn't he's not joking. <laughs> I thought the I was like, Look, <laughs> Yeah, he was like, come on. You remember we met on a beach in Sierra Leone. This is what happens. Um, so yeah. So then our criteria were very simply um, some that was very different. We were going to get escape winter six to nine months. Some that was different to you know culturally and climate to where we were living here, somewhere hot, um, and somewhere with good Wi-Fi connection so it could work remotely, um, and somewhere where there was some kind of international uh, small international school. And actually, that third factor was the thing that narrowed it down, because otherwise there's loads of cities, especially in southern Asia, uh, where you can live um, great, obviously great online connection and in the tropics um, or, or you can live with a you can find international schools. But the problem, you know, they're all in big cities and we didn't want to be in a big city. So then I was looking at places like Ubud again, but we've been there before. And then um, and then I found Koh Lanta in southern Thailand. So this is near just south of Krabi and opposite Phuket. Uh, the Andaman Sea and Koh Lanta is this sort of 20 kilometer island and it's still developed for tourism but it's more low-key than than Pipi and Phuket and elsewhere around there um, and I, I was scrolling on Google Earth and as I was going down the road and I was looking at all the kind of bars and hotels and, and places I saw this like global village school uh, oh, wow. on the map and I was like what's that and I looked, clicked the link and I was like oh this is small school it's been running for five years international school for families who are visiting or living on on the island and i was like oh wow and then literally 100 meters further on from the school there i found cohub um wow uh, Co- this is all google earth yeah i was just scrolling through across the island so yeah and i was like wow those are the two things we're looking for um so this is it we're going so we made we we then we the decision the time between making the decision leaving was six weeks which um if you're by yourself maybe that's not that long but as a family that's quite a short period of time but i like that because it pushed us to like pack down the house quickly pack down our lives here 
pack up our bags to go and then um, without too much thinking because I think you always feel that transition time with whatever however right. long it is with like the planning it's like planning a wedding a year and a half from oh, now. <laughs> yeah exactly um, so we did it and we and the we moved there in early October and we came back uh, a month ago so we were gonna get, the goal was to be there six to nine months and we ended up being six months mainly because we couldn't get our education visas um, which we we're hoping to get which would have made it easier to stay longer. And secondly, um, the house here, the, the, you know, rental wasn't quite as good as we thought. So it was a couple of things built up and, and we felt like, oh, we've done a good six months here, but it was brilliant. And the highlight, the highlight package is strong. And of course the kids had a great adventure and they'll always have that as part of their, their story of early, in their early years. I'm living a bit nomadically now, and people often say to me, well, you can do this now, Paul, but once you, quote-unquote, get serious or have kids <laughs> down the road, you surely can't do anything except have a uh, full-time job and uh, do these things. Did you get any pushback from people uh, taking your kids abroad? No, we didn't get pushback. We got a lot of – I think people have learned that probably with me anyway, <laughs> all the stuff we've talked about this morning. Um but I think the, oh, hello, not long, 10 more minutes. Just talking about you. Yeah, that's Isla. Um, yeah, we, we, it was more a case that I looked at the business model, like quite, you know, family business model. And I realized that, okay, worst case scenario is it's going to cost us a little bit to do this. Best case scenario, we come back and profit. And I think it ended up costing us a thousand pounds a month extra than we were spend uh, than we were yeah then we were had income so we lost a little bit but then i didn't do a lot of work and we did a lot of time with family and just enjoying the experience so and i did a lot of time taking care of the kids as well so um so it was fantastic but the you of course you've got to go into these things with your eyes open like the instagram version of it looks incredible but the reality is that we were you know checking snake for snakes in the garden we were um a lot of mosquitoes. Uh, the climate isn't was intense. You know, between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Unless you're inside or air conditioned or asleep in your hammock, it's not that. It's too hot, especially for a three-year-old or a two-year-old. So that was hard. And there's less active, structured activities than you'd have in a a town in England where you know kids have got loads of things to do. So that was those things were challenging. But the upside was that apart from being in the sun for the winter um was that we hung out with a we got to know a lovely group of families who were all there for different reasons for 10 sort of 15 different national nationalities a lot of dual national um children at the school so half thai half half um from another part of the world and so it felt really but it was low-key it wasn't a sort of big global international school it was just people who were there for the lifestyle and and, you know, we escaped the winter and escaped all the the politics of this country at the moment. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone. But you've got to go into it with uh, some energy. Uh, you've got to go into it with the expectations that it's, yes, you won't have, you, you're not going to have the cold winter. You're not going to have the coughs and colds of the kids. You're not going to have um, these things that might be hard work here. Um, but what, but you're going to trade that in for something else, you know, like skin issues or heat exhaustion or, you know, right. so it's, there's always, wherever you go, it's going to be challenging. Um, but we, the, what I like about doing that kind of thing is that you're, when you're talking about it here, people go, oh, wow, that's, that's crazy. How's it going to go? And, um, I wish we were brave enough to do something like that. And then you get there and you realize you're the, uh, 
<laughs> you're the like there's a lot more hardcore families than you there's people who've been like living there for years or traveling around the world with all their kids and driving a tuk-tuk or whatever it is and you're like okay but that's what's fun you know you connect to that next sort of stage um so yeah we 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 had a wonderful time and we're very glad we made the effort but it, it's a significant amount of energy to make that transition uh physically and emotionally you know back and forth with the family so i don't think we can do it too regularly yeah, is there anything different you're thinking about uh, in terms of raising a family and designing work and life uh, since being back from that? I don't think dramatically. It just emphasized to us two things. One is spend as much time as we can with the children in these, especially these early years, as you know, together as parents. Although that's intense, it's you know, there's ups and downs with that. The, the trade-off is that you know you, you build these build these wonderful relationships with them. Um, and nature so we've come back to it we're not in london but we've come back to a busy town and uh surrounded by beautiful countryside but we're like we're craving more nature so that's why i want to get out to the countryside so um so yeah those are the two two big lessons in terms of work um so it's an interesting time for me because i've got uh, good projects going on and i'm working again with escape city um a little bit but this is a time where i'm exploring what else could i what do i get my teeth stuck into next the next year or two um, and that's just, uh, you know, an exploration phase at the moment, but I don't have that much time to explore. So I'm trying to do that occasionally. And when I'm having interesting conversations like these, I'd love to close with perhaps some reflections in terms of what you've seen. You've obviously experimented in many different ways with how to live life, how to design work around that. What do you, what do you think have been some of the major shifts in terms of just people's expectations around uh, what they expect from work? It seems, especially in the last 10 years, a lot more people are almost expecting to kind of design a career in life similar to what you've been doing over the past 20 years. Have you, yeah. have you found something like that or a continued shift towards people's expectations raising in that? Totally. And I think there's some big trends going on globally that are accelerating. Obviously, you know, the last 20 years, we've seen communications uh, channels shrink because of the Internet and therefore travel has become a very different, seems a lot easier to get around the world. And then Wi-Fi being available so people can start working more remotely. So those trends and also the fact that people are able to, you know, more and more people are freelancing. There's more and more opportunities to do that kind of work. All that's accelerated that stuff. But I think maybe one of the big differences now is also the expectation of because uh, of the, uh, you know, 20 to 30 year old is not um, is, you know, the values alignment for them between what they what matters them in life and their work is now completely integrated. And so this idea of going going and working in a certain job if it, that isn't isn't quite right in terms of what matters to them is it's quite a big challenge whereas maybe in the past it's like no this is what you do and then you go outside of work you do things that are important to you outside of work so that's that shifted things and they, we're seeing the disruption in big companies uh, around that because the demands that are being made which is great and this b corp movement and all this stuff is just fantastic so yeah it feels like a really exciting time um of course alongside that you've got a lot of trends that are chaotic whether it's economic or um environmental and so uh i think it's a you know the mental health of this generation coming through now who feel like the world is yes it's their uh, their oyster in the sense that they can create opportunities um for themselves their connections there are tools there are there's lots of sort of 
paths to different paths to follow now and lots of amazing resources like your podcast to, to inspire them and guide them. And the flip side is that it feels chaotic. It feels like wouldn't I be better just to stay put and, you know, do what's do what's sensible. But um I think there's ways of de-risking this all these transitions and both um financially and psychologically and and uh you know uh, in terms of the cv as well it's like it's just about telling your story and 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 why you've made these decisions um and i think one of the best books i've read on this topic is called the hundred year life i don't know if you've come across it yet paul but it's uh I've it's a really cool book reference it ah yeah so it's 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 a brilliant book because it really goes into detail about the shifts especially around the length of our careers and the fact that you know, if you're 20 now, you've got more than a 50% chance of living to 100. And that's the shift in mindset then for that generation. And so what that means is that you're thinking about multiple careers, multiple identities, um, you know, because you're going to be working, or you know, building projects, <laughs> living your career for 60 years or so rather than 30 or 40. So that is a big mindset shift that's going to kick in over the next decade. And therefore, what does that mean? Do I spend the first 10 years exploring and trying, you know, trying out stuff before I commit to something? And then I do something for 10 years and then another thing and then another thing. Um, so I think those those kind of um, reinventing your career and reimagining work exactly as you're doing is is going to become more and more frequent. Um, but, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a time of flux in the world of work. And that's exciting and terrifying for those that are caught up in it. And um I think the, the my last reflection would be just if you're if you're kind of curious about all this stuff, you're listening to these podcasts, you're reading these books, and you don't know how to start taking the steps. The first step is just to be on lead, uh, listening and reading and watching is to go and start spending time with people who are doing it, whether that's in meetups, at event, in real life, right, not just online, at meetups and events, um, in in all you know in communities like Escape the City in London and others around the world, because that will that will accelerate your your mindset and the opportunities um and and before you know it you'll be recording a podcast in taipei (laughs) i love it i uh i fully embrace that uh, advice i'm so grateful to a lot of the people i met in my own uh, path i have a link now on my site where people can just book curiosity conversations with me being able to form that like first friend or that first person that's thinking or living in a different way uh, can be much more impactful than no matter how many books or side things you're starting. Of course. You, it's a combination, I think, uh, for me. Yeah, it's like the hybrid sure. of everything. Um, I'm going to have to um, apologize and run away because I can hear my children. The reality of <laughs> life is kicking in. i got to go and help. Um, but thank you, for, thank you for your time and, and your interest. Fantastic. Thank you for the conversation, Ben. And I will link up to the Rebel Book Club and everything else you're involved in and uh, continue to wish you the best of luck and continued adventures. Thanks so much, Paul. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reimagine Work. I'm having a ton of fun recording these interviews and connecting with the many listeners who keep reaching out across the world. This is an ad-free creative project, and if you want to help me keep it going, you can check out the link to support it in the show notes. I've actually coded up some links there that you can help support the podcast and do so directly. The other way you can support is just to share it with a friend. Share with a nice tweet, a Facebook post, or even just standing in front of your friend and say, you have to download this now. Check this out. 
If you have any thoughts on the episodes or guest suggestions, just shoot me an email. I love hearing from you guys, and I wish you all the best of luck in your own journeys to reimagine work.